Then we're going to go from Samaria. We're going to go back to Jerusalem. And the angel of the Lord is going to tell uh, Philip uh, to go down to Gaza. So where is Gaza? First, we have Jerusalem right here. Philip runs out, he goes to Samaria, and then the angel of the Lord tells him to go on this road. And he gets on this road and finds Ethiopian eunuch as he makes his travels to Gaza. How about a little history? We have a character, Candake the Queen. Now, when you read in your Bibles, if you, if you open up your Bibles, you might notice that when we're reading that some say it's Candace. Well, Candace is just the Latinized version of Candake. So he started out on his way and he met an Ethiopian eunuch. All right? So when you think Ethiopian, you probably, your mind goes to Ethiopia. But when you see Ethiopian in Scripture, they're referring to the Greek word actually means burnt. It means someone with a dark face. We're referring to, when you say Ethiopian, anyone at that time who lived below south of Egypt. And he's a treasurer for Candake, for this queen, Candake. Now, Candake is a title, and it's given to several ruling queens of the ancient kingdom of Cush and Nubia. Now, remember back in Exodus, Moses marries a woman. Where's she from? She's a Cushite. She's a black African woman from Cush, and that causes all kinds of trouble, right? Well, this area, this land is is considered Cush or Nubia, with its capital at Moreau. Although the term itself was used by or given to anyone in the royal family, any female in the royal family could be called a Candake. The true or Greek word is kandake. Kandake. Try that out. Kandake. Here is the area, uh, a little bit of the southern part of Egypt, a lot of Sudan, and its capital is in Moreau. It's right alongside uh, the river, and at the time uh, that this was happening, weather was different, and they would have been in lush green areas, okay? But a lot has changed since then. If you look at the trip, that this Ethiopian treasurer took, if you took it today in a car, all right, it would be 1,800 miles. Now, if you straighten some of that out, it would be around 15. But today, that's an 1,800-mile trip. Now, if you made that trip, 1,800 miles, and you were walking at 4 miles an hour, that's a really good pace for anybody who's walking that, that's a, that's, you're really clipping right along. That's, that's a fast pace to keep up with for four hours. It would take you 450 hours to make this trip. To give you an idea how many days, if you traveled 24 hours round, that would take you 18 days if you had the capacity to keep moving at four miles an hour 
for 18 days. Now, if you did it like they did it and you traveled for half a day, 12 hours of the day, David, you would make it there in 36 days. This Ethiopian took 36 days to reach Jerusalem and 36 days to make it back. Well, what do we know about this queen? Amanatore, Amanatore. She ruled during this time in the land of Cush, in the land of Nubia. She was the queen between 22 and 41 A.D. So that puts her perfect for our story because we're somewhere around 34 A.D. We even happen to know what she looked like. This is a picture of her depicted on her pyramid at the pyramids of Moreau. Now, there are over 200 of these pyramids, and many of them were built during her reign. She was a very wealthy, very powerful, very influential queen of her time. And these, these, most of these pyramids that we see here are built during her reign. They're out in the middle of nowhere and all that is left of this capital city of Moreau. They were quite wealthy. People who did, uh, we don't have much as far as knowing their own history, but we have people who traded with them. And we know from the people who traded with them that they exported uh, gold, jewelry, exotic animals, and expensive fabric. Does this sound like a poor nation or a wealthy nation? It's a wealthy nation. So this man riding along in this chariot that we're going to see later on in our story is a very wealthy man. He's done very well for himself in, in this empire. Divine appointments. All right. Let your fingers fall down to about verse 8, and that's where we're going to start our study this morning. And you might be asking, well, Keith, what do you mean by divine appointments? Divine appointments are unexpected appointments God leads you to to proclaim the Messiah. You woke up this morning. You didn't plan on it happening, Jeremiah, but God's going to lead you to a divine appointment. And are we going to take advantage of that appointment? Are we going to recognize it? And are we going to be poor enough in spirit to take on his will, Mary, and to fulfill that appointment that God has brought us to? Now, Sam, uh, excuse me, now, Stephen a man full of God's grace and power. He, he's in the synagogue. And I, I'm going to paraphrase a lot of the story because we don't have enough time to go through everything this morning. But he's in the synagogue of the freemen. And, and he's preaching and teaching to these men. And he's preaching to them about Christ. And it makes them upset. And so... They tell him to come with him. They actually drag him out of their synagogue to the temple and they throw him in front of the Sanhedrin court. And the Sanhedrin, it, it looks like they pause for a moment, like he's thrown out right in front of them and they pause for a moment. And scripture says that he looked like, his face looked like an angel. Now, I don't know what that means, and theologians argue about what that means. 
Some want to say, well, Rick, he glowed. He, he, had, he, he literally with light, he glowed. And others say, no, that he was just very sure of himself and at peace like an angel, like a messenger from God. He knows why he's there and he knows what he's going to do. I don't know which it means. You can ask Preston later. He was probably there. But Stephen breaks into, Stephen, and I apologize, he only goes back to the Civil War age. Okay, so Stephen starts his speech here with Abraham. And I've read through this speech all my life and really never gotten down to what does this speech from Stephen really mean? What's this all about? So I'm going to try to break it down to you, and it's pretty simple. And you'll see the theme as we go on in the, in the, the, the sermon that Stephen preaches to the Sanhedrin court. But the first thing he does is he does what almost all, all the people giving speeches in Acts do when they're speaking to the Jewish nation. They start with Abraham. They start with the Old Testament. The first thing each one of these men do, whether it be Peter, Paul, or Stephen, they start with, this is not a new religion. This is the fulfillment of the religion. You see, each one of these, these men who declare and proclaim Christ, they're going up against uh, uh, three sets of different people. One, to the Jewish nation. To them, they want them to understand that this is not a new religion. The second is the Greeks. When they're going out and talking to anybody who is a Gentile, someone who's not a Jew, they want them to realize that this, this new Christianity is for everyone. And then the third thing, they want the Romans to realize this religion is not about power and politics, but this new religion is about relationship and servanthood. Now, starting with Joseph being sold into slavery and God setting him free, here we start the theme of the speech. The theme of the speech is prophets, slavery, bondage, being set free, and messiahs. Being set free and deliverers. Okay, And we're going to see this all the way through his speech. Just, just take that as a running theme. We're going to see prophets. We're going to see people making decisions for sin and for idols. And idols represent self-will here. Okay, They're self-will. They're wanting to be their own God. They're wanting to have it their way. And then to have deliverers come to them. Joseph, the rejected Savior, saves his people. Remember, Joseph talked about the dreams. Remember Joseph's dreams? That his family is going to bow down to them? What do they do? They sell him off into slavery. You see the bondage again? You see the theme of bondage? You see the, the prophet that came and prophesied what was going to happen. It, it got him sent away or, or they tried to sell him into slavery. 
And then Joseph ends up being their deliverer in the end, right? He brings the whole family in and saves them from starving to death because of the famine. Number four, Joseph, Moses is rejected as a savior, but then again he comes back and saves his people. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but he, they didn't. Remember, Moses goes out and he kills a man for whipping the Israelites. And he thinks that, hey, the Israelites are going to recognize I'm here for them. But they don't. They want it their way. Their self-will says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses gives them the law. And the people reject it. The ancestors, our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. He gives, tries to give them the law and they start making idols for themselves. Then Solomon builds a house for God but they fail to see that God's not in idols God's not in things he has to remind them hey heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool footstool what kind of house will you build for me says the Lord or where will my resting place be Stephen is reminding them it's not about idols it's not about having your way You're all the time making things into your idols, trying to serve yourself. You're a stiff-necked people. You resist the Holy Spirit. And at this point, they begin to get angry. Then he reminds them, there was another prophet, John the Baptist, and you murdered him too. He told you that the righteous one was coming, and you've murdered John the Baptist also. And now you've murdered the righteous one, the Messiah himself. Do you see this theme going on throughout this speech? Then the members of the Sanhedrin heard this. They were furious and gnashed their teeth. They start doing what we always do when what religious folks do when you bring up a new point and you don't like it. They start gnashing their teeth. Stephen goes on and he's, he's trying to present his case. And he can tell things are getting ugly. And God reveals himself. And Stephen knows he's right. Stephen knows what he's doing is right. And he says, I see Christ standing before God on his throne. At this, they've had enough. Just like little kids throwing a tinter tantrum. They start yelling, covering their ears, start yelling. And they drag him out of the city. And they begin to stone Stephen. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He prays to Christ as they're crushing his skull with one stone after another. Lord, 
don't hold this against them. He prays, and then he falls asleep. Interesting words for a physician, right? Remember, this is Luke, the physician, writing this. Interesting words, and he falls asleep. Luke knows what death is. He's very acquainted with death. He wants his readers, as he reads this, to understand that Stephen knows this is not the end. This is just walking from this life into the next life. And then the persecution drives the church into Judea and Samaria. On that day, one of the things that I don't like about the Bible being divided into chapters and verses is that sometimes we stop at the end of a of a chapter and really this one is a whole story the stoning of Stephen creates a great persecution which broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him now Luke wants to see you wants you to see and God's got an eye on that guy Saul God's watching. Don't let Saul sneak up on you. He's watching Saul. He's got a plan for Saul. Keep him in the back of your mind. Those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city, Samaria, and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. You, you remember Philip from last week. He was a servant chosen to wait on tables for the widows. But now this persecution has began and he scatters with everyone else. He goes north up into Samaria and he starts cl- proclaiming Christ. He starts preaching the Messiah. And, and he's drawing great crowds. Things are going well. He's baptizing people. People are being saved. Everything's going well except that crazy uh, Simon the magician, the sorcerer, okay? But people are being baptized. People are being saved. Great crowds are drawing around Philip. Let your finger slide down to 26. And now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. We looked at that just a moment ago on the map. He started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official of the charge of all the treasure of Kandike, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. He'd been a long ways, right? I woke up this morning at 5 o'clock, and Anna can tell you it was really hard to get up. I know my phone said 6, but my body knew it was 5. And it felt like a long ways to get here. Can I tell you, we know nothing about going a long ways to worship. This guy has traveled at least 1,500 miles and 36 days to worship. And on his way home... He was sitting in his chariot reading from the book of Isaiah, the prophet. 
the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Do you see the divine appointment? I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just going to tell you where to go. And you look around and you pay attention, Philip, and you recognize the divine appointment. And Philip does just that. If you ever wondered how Philip made it up to a chariot being drawn by a horse, guess what? Most likely it was not. Because this is, this is a Nubian queen being drawn in a chariot. Look what's pulling the chariot. Is it a horse? What is it? It's a cow. It's some kind of bovine animal. They walk much slower, like my pace, three miles an hour. So he comes up alongside of this chariot. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. In this passage of Scripture, the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to slaughter, a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from earth. This, is, this starts in Isaiah 53, verse 7. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please. Who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then and right there, Philip sees his opportunity and began with the very passage of Scripture. They're going to read more Scripture. But he begins right there and starts telling him about the good news of Jesus. I wonder, as Philip was reading Isaiah... If they just kept on reading, because it's not too long, just a few chapters over, that we come to, I believe it's Isaiah 56. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. That must have, that must have got the eunuch's attention. And then he says, let no eunuch complain. Wait, stop. What did you say? Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, to choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give them my temple and its walls in memorial and a name better than sons or daughters. You see, eunuchs can't have sons or daughters, so he's going to give him something better. I will give to them an everlasting name that will endure forever. My child. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Do you think this scripture set the eunuch on fire? 
Do you think he got excited when he read this scripture? As they traveled, back on to Acts, starting at 8.36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Do you get it? This man's been on the outside all his life. Right? He was surgically altered, probably at birth. And he's looked different and sounded different and been different all his life. He's on the outside. And they've been telling him why he can't worship. You realize eunuchs can't go into the temple and worship. The best he could do is be in the court of the Gentiles. He's gone over 1,800 miles to worship. And when he gets there, because of this way, he's been altered. He can't even worship in the temple. He's been on the outside all his life. He doesn't fit in with the guys, and he doesn't fit in with the girls. And he's been restricted all his life on how he could worship and what he could belong to. And now, Philip has told him this great story about how he can fit in. How he can be a part. And he's wanting to know from Philip. Okay, you've said this, but what keeps me out? What keeps me from stopping? What keeps me from being baptized? What keeps me from engaging in Christianity? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And they both, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water. And Philip baptized him. When he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And look what, church, do you see? What does the eunuch do? What's he doing? What's the eunuch doing? He's rejoicing. For the first time in this man's life, he gets to fully engage in worship. He gets to fully engage and belong to a family. He gets to have the unity of the Spirit. For the first time in his life, the Holy Spirit has filled him up, and now he belongs to Christ. And he can't do but one thing. He rejoices. So let's look at a few points, and the sermon will be yours. Divine appointments. Number one, You must be willing to engage for divine appointments. Stephen could have stopped preaching in the Freeman Synagogue, right? He could have said, oh, I I see I'm really upsetting you guys. And so now I'll just find somewhere else to go. But he didn't. He knew he had their ear. He knew they were listening When they drug him to the Sanhedrin, he could have looked at the Sanhedrin and called, Foul, I'm really not blaspheming here. I'm really not doing away with with the Ten Commandments that Moses gave us. Foul, but he doesn't. He engages in the divine appointment that God has set in front of him, and he preaches to them, And it cost him his life. 
but he's willing to engage. If we're going to meet the divine appointments, we've got to be willing to engage. Philip was preaching in Samaria and having great results, okay? He was doing really well. He was drawing crowds, and they were saving people, and the whole town was being turned upside down with this new Christianity. i got to tell you, if I'm making that kind of waves today, and somebody goes, Keith, I've got a plan for you. You need to head down to this road. Will I engage? Philip did. And it changed the Cush, the Ethiopian, the Nubian world. 333 AD. It is the third nation to declare Christianity as its as its nation's religion. It, it, it means we've got to be poor in spirit. It, whether, whether it's Peter responding to the knock at his door in Joppa to go talk to Cornelius, or, or, or if, it, if it's Paul speaking to Felix, or, or Festus, or, or it's it's. Paul engaging with the Areopagus on Mars Hill, they're always willing to engage the appointment. And I got to tell you, most of them didn't know these appointments were coming at all. Renee Schlefford tells this great story about divine appointments. One of the women in his church was going to work and traffic was terrible and she got rear-ended. Kind of a bummer, kind of a downer. Not, no one was really hurt, just a fender bender. And she goes back and she starts talking with the woman who hit her and invites her to church because she saw it as a divine appointment. There was somebody, there was some reason this was happening around her. And when Renee tells this story, the woman who rear-ended this woman is in the crowd. Hearing the word of the Lord being preached. Because she saw it as a divine appointment. God can use the discomfort to move us into our mission. Now notice I didn't say, God will do bad things so good things will happen. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is God uses discomfort to move us into our mission. God can use the evil and the bad things that happen to move us into the mission. Because see, what was happening in Jerusalem in just a very short time was they converted 7,000 people and they were enjoying the goodwill of all men. They were getting along with people the Christians were, everybody was respecting them, and they were baptizing people, and this thing is growing exponentially. And then this bad thing happens. Stephen is stoned, and this persecution starts, 
and it sends people everywhere. You see this bad thing that happened, it spread the word of God into Samaria and Judea. Some times God uses discomfort to move us into our mission. Will we recognize that when that happens to us? On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Number three, never assume God can't bridge the gap. (sighs) Too often, we look at people who are dissimilar to us, and we think in our minds, I could never reach that person. Do you see the gauges in her ear? Do you see the bone through her nose? Do you see the blue hair that she's got? Do you see the full tats all over her body? I can't reach her. She's too different. Or maybe the difference is color. Or or maybe it's ethnic. She's Chinese. How will I ever? They're Mandarin. How will I ever? I don't speak their language. I don't know their culture. Folks, you're limiting God where he's not limited. Don't ever assume that God can't bridge the gaps between you and other people. Let's take a look at this. Philip, sex is male. Ethiopian official, he's a surgically altered, gender-neutral person. Philip's class is middle-lower. This Ethiopian official, upper or high. Ethnicity, Philip's a Jew, probably a a deep, olive-tan Jewish man. This is an African, dark-skinned Black, as black gets, gentlemen from Africa. Culture, Philip is a Hellenistic, a Greek man who's in a male-dominated culture. This Ethiopian, he's Nubian, Kush. He's in a female-dominated culture. Government, Well, Philip's been raised up in a Roman republic. For the Ethiopian, all he knows are visors and monarchies. Philip was raised a Judeo-Christian. The Ethiopian, a proselyte Jew or a God-fearer. A God-fearer is a term where you come to understand that there is one monotheistic Yahweh, but you're not willing to take on all the culture of the Jews, okay? So at best, he's a proselyte or just a God-fearer. You could have not gotten two guys in the same chariot that were any more dissimilar, but they come to know and love Christ because God can bridge all Gaps. Amen? Number four, to fully accept divine appointments, we must find our identity in Christ. 
if we're really going to accept and to engage in divine appointments, our identity has to be in Christ. Look at Stephen. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold a sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Luke 24 and 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Luke 23, 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you think Stephen was Christ-focused? Do you think he was an imitator of Christ? Do you think his identity was found in Christ? I think it was because at his very death, he's doing the same thing that he's seen his Christ do. He is Christ-focused. If we're going to engage in divine appointments, we must find our identity in Christ. The question is this morning, are we willing to accept and acknowledge divine appointments? Where we started this morning was, those are who are poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of heaven. If I'm going to participate in divine appointments, Mike, I've got to be poor in spirit and not put on what Keith wants. But I've got to look at everything and every situation to recognize what God wants. So you, when you walk out of here today, will you be thinking about what you want and through the rest of the week, are you going to be thinking about what you want or are you going to be thinking about what God wants? And the divine appointments that he sets before you, you've got a choice. You can ignore the appointments or you can accept them and make them a part of your life. It can happen again. Just a small church who's willing to pray for people, intentionally mission to people, and engage people for Christ can change the world. I pray that you will know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.